Representative Carrie Benninghoff is one of the longest serving members of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. So you might think with over two decades of working in the Capitol that he's lost touch with the real world and his constituents. But to the contrary, Carrie is one of the most down-to-earth people you will ever meet. We recently talked about his growing up as an adopted child, the tragedy of losing his daughter, as well as his most satisfying accomplishment in Harrisburg to date. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs, and I am in the beautiful town of Belfont in the offices of Representative Carrie Benninghoff. Uh, Carrie, thanks for coming on Brews and Views. Well, thanks for coming to the big town of Belfont. As you know, we're the only small community to be home of five Pennsylvania past governors. Oh, really? I did not know that. A little bit of trivia. So maybe, Absolutely. well, tell us about that since you started down that road, and then we'll, we'll get to the, the person behind the politician here. Well, we are called Center County because we are located in the center of the state, and we are spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. Yes. Not because we cannot spell, but I think that's the <laughs> old English spelling. But as turn of the century, we were very much involved with a lot of industrial revolutions in the past and uh, a lot of good coal, a lot of good iron ore and limestone and other types of manufacturing things that went on here. And as you saw, um, as I told you, actually, there's been five governors who actually lived and were from Belfont. We've actually had seven governors who have lived there. Two were from other states. But it's part of our heritage. We're very proud of. We're an old Victorian town and we uh, don't have as much manufacturing and those types of things going on. We still have a very uh, beautiful fountain here that we are named after, uh, French word. This beautiful fountain is Bellefonte, or Bellefonte, as some people like to say. Well, I I'll, I want to ask you now if you want to be the eighth governor from this area, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll tackle that uh, as we get through this conversation. But, uh, Carrie, we, I know we're in the 171st. Correct. Uh, that's legislative district. You are in your 11th term. You're running uh, for re-election to a 12th term. Uh, somewhere, what, four or five in seniority out of a body of, well, in terms of the Republican caucus, 121, I believe, Correct. right now. So uh, you've been around for a long time. Um, uh, but uh, let's go back to where you got started. Um, you, you're, you're, are you from Pennsylvania? Is Pennsylvania, are you a native uh, son here? I am almost a complete native son of Center County. I was born in a little town called Lebanon County. Which is uh, that's uh, where I live, yes. Yeah, good little county. Yeah, Lebanon. My second favorite <laughs> county, how's that? And uh, I was adopted out three years later. My parents, uh, John and Gloria, came to Center County following World War II, and my father was discharged in 1946 and came to GI Bill to go to school. Apparently, we're not able to have children. And my father used to ride to work with a guy when he started working in a place called Titan Metal here named Tom uh, Beaver, who ironically, his sister, was the head of the Children's Youth Organization. To make a long story short, through dialogues, Tom said, well, you ought to meet my sister. And so my parents were quasi-foster parents for Center County, but did not get paid. They were basically an interim stop in the 60s for children that were going to be placed for adoption. So sometimes the children were there for two days, sometimes mm -hmm. two weeks, and sometimes two months. And in the interim... They slowly started to adopt us. So my parents adopted four children starting in 1954 with my sister and every four years after that and in 1966. Any, any siblings, uh, you know, uh, no, biological none are, siblings? No, none of okay. are biologically okay. connected. As I said, they adopted us every four years, uh -huh. except for my brother Rich and I. We were adopted 
six months apart. There's a little story behind that. When my parents had adopted him, they thought they were going to lose him due to a court challenge from the natural born father. And then that was ended abruptly. And in the interim, they talked to a physician in Lebanon County who my father went to high school with and subsequently went off to war with. And so Carrie Ganger, who I'm named after, stayed in Lebanon County and became an obstetrician. And so when they thought they were going to lose Richard, my father called his high school bud and said, hey, any chance you can help us out? We're trying to adopt another child. And they did. And they subsequently got me. So they tried to raise us as twins. I tried to tell my parents, considering <laughs> Richard was a bright red carrot top, and I was a short, stocky brunette. I think by the time we were in 11th grade, they finally stopped dressing us the same way <laughs> and recognized that we weren't twins. And as a good habit, the good Lord blessed my parents four years later and allowed them to have their own natural child. And so did you know uh, growing up that you were adopted? Uh, yeah, my parents were very on? open yeah. about it. Uh-huh. And you got to remember, my parents took care of somewhere close to 75 children in these interim stops. And so we wow. had kids coming in and out of the house okay. all the time. Uh, it was kind of funny. Uh, Ethel Beaver, who was a child and children youth director that day, was a a robust sized woman. And so, as young children, we thought this lady had all these babies, and we often because <laughs> she kept about bringing that. them. Well, she's huh? bringing yeah. my mother okay. these babies, and we get the bass. <laughs> our bassinet was set up in a house for you know the first fourteen years of my life, and once in a while, one of us would be in it. But we all had children of all different uh, ages that came in and out of the house. My mother was very loving and loved that. And I often now times look back, you know, my father never made a lot of money, but somehow he opened that house to them. Hmm. And oftentimes they provided extra formula and things that these children needed. And my father was never a rich man. My father never drew, drove a new car that I ever knew of. And I often now look back and think about the sacrifices he made for me and all those other children. Yeah. And both your parents have, have passed? Uh... Yes. Lost them both two years ago, uh-huh. about 30 days apart. Okay. Yep. A broken heart, probably. <laughs> no, you know, just timing of it. Uh, we actually, yeah. father died uh, a little bit before his 90th birthday, and, and mom passed. She fell and broke her hip, of all things, and did well from the surgery, but subsequently just never got out of the hospital in time. Now, so was, was were your parents politically involved? I mean, uh, here you've been in office for a long time, so we had, were, did you guys talk politics at the dinner table or anything like that? No, actually not. And uh, my father, is funny, as you get older, you find some role reversals at times, or you feel different um, times where you're not always the son-parent type thing. But there was a particular issue when I talked to my father, and he seemed almost dumbfounded by my perspective of it. And uh, though he took interest in what I was saying to kind of back up my view on a thing, but it was interesting because I, for some reason, I just assumed that he would have been thinking along the same lines as me. But um, there's an interesting, for me, phenomenon. You look at the whole argument of nurture versus nature. Uh-huh. And my brothers and sisters and I are all very different. Uh, there's even one of different political persuasion than I am. <laughs> they remind me they still vote for me. But uh, it's interesting that they are very different in my mom and dad's views. And my mother uh, probably got more viewpoints as she got older. She got married at 16. My dad was 22. But uh, my mother really studied the Bible a lot as she got older and took on more views, and she spent a little more time watching the news and paying attention to mm-hmm. it. I think she actually expressed herself more than my dad. My dad was a little more quiet, a little more passive. Well, so before we get into how you started running for office and uh, whatnot, uh, all, you you grew up here, went to school yes. uh, uh, in Belfont uh, no, as actually, well? No, actually, I grew up in a little town called Hauserville. It's a okay. very, very old community in Center County. It's uh, probably 12 miles 
west of State College, pardon me, of Belfont. It's in State College School mm-hmm. District. So I went to school in State College and um, grew up in this little town. My parents actually have Jacob Hauser's original homestead. Mm-hmm. It's over 300 years old. Always needed dusted. <laughs> but it was an old horse farm. Uh-huh. So it was a great place to raise children, about five acres of land, it bordered the stream. And it, for a long time, it was kind of the community play area because there wasn't a park. And so the Easter egg hunt that the community put together occurred on my parents' property and just other kind of social activities. And the neighborhood boys would come down there and we would play ball and whatever else. Okay, so uh, you grow up, uh, go off to school, or you stick around here uh, for school? What, what do you do? Well, I started working at 11. Uh-huh. I got a job working for a physician's uh, wife doing some work around their house, great lady. I still remember the very, very first day working for her. One of the first jobs I had to do was thatch the grass, raking it, taking out the brown grass. I can't imagine people doing that today. <laughs> but this is hand raking it. And, you know, I grew up in five acres, so there was always lots of work to do. My parents uh, were very good at finding things to keep four bad boys and a, and a daughter Dig a hole, busy. fill it up. Yeah, yeah sort yeah, of yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, we used to have a stone driveway, so you had to weed it with a screwdriver. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't even know what a weed whacker was until I was out of the, my parents' home. I never saw one. Everything was clipped by hands. But anyway, I, I had to thatch this lawn for this woman, and after I did it, and I had my little piles of brown grass all over the place, she says, now I'm going to show you how to do it right. <laughs> and she re-raked some of this stuff. Now, there was, in my opinion, there was very little grass left in the yard, but mm-hmm. she apparently wanted no brown grass. But uh, my mother and my dad were good workers, but this woman, uh, Mrs. Carney, I love her dearly, always will, really taught me how to work. Uh-huh. And she was very generous. I made a dollar fifty an hour and she took me for the tallest ice cream cone I ever saw on my first day. But you know, getting that first check at eleven years old, I've never forgotten it. It was mm-hmm. eight fifty for the day. And I can't remember how many hours that would have been. I'm not sure if I liked the eight fifty or the triple decker ice cream cone the most. But that woman took um made me take honor and pride in what I did and mm-hmm. the value of work. And I'm I can still visualize that check if I think about it. Hmm that my labor meant something, and there's value to earning that. Mm-hmm. And she appreciated it. And subsequently, I continued working for her even when I got a full-time job uh, building houses. I worked for her part-time and even my first year of college just because I enjoyed the relationship, and they were like surrogate parents. Okay, so you're working uh, starting at 11, and yep. uh, go out. where do you go off to college, Gary? Penn State. Okay. way you know, Go way away from Yeah, from, really from far away. Yeah. And I was... Uh, working construction, yeah, I started that when I was just, so I got my first construction job. I had to get working papers, so I've been 15 or 16 those days. I worked hmm. for a contractor, and again, nice guy. And at the end of the summer, he later went also off but me, and he found busy work for me. He liked my work, and I, whether I'm cleaning out his own garage or whatever else, he kept me on until school year started, which, you know, in some ways was rewarding. I was probably the cheapest guy in the payroll, too. <laughs> but it also reminded me that if you work hard and do well, you'll be honored mm-hmm. by that. Mm-hmm. And he found that, one, he trusted me to work in his own house when he wasn't there. And at a young person's age, I think you have to look at that and say, that's an issue of trust. Mm-hmm. And trust is part of the work. Mm-hmm. So you go off to Penn State. So what what do you uh, pursue there? What uh, kind Girls. of degree? Girl- <laughs> uh, in all honesty, I never finished. I told people I was working full-time. 20, or probably 35 hours a week building hmm. houses, going to school full-time, coaching wrestling part-time and chasing girls part-time, okay. and probably not doing any one of them very well. <laughs> and, you know, for a long time, it was very embarrassing to say I didn't finish. And I remember telling my best friend who lived around the corner from my parents that I was pulling out for a while. I just didn't really know why I was there. 
And I was embarrassed to tell him he's an academic wizard and is doing well now. But he said, you know, Kerry, the difference is, because in those days I was actually doing body work on people's cars, making a couple bucks on the side. I was mm-hmm. doing other stuff. He says, you have the ability to do many things. Academia is all I have. Uh-huh. If I don't do well there. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything. You've always been able to do something. So that was kind of comforting. Mm-hmm. But I also have to put a shout out for a counselor at Penn State who's no longer with us either. I went in to see this guy, and he, I won't mention name, but his son and I went to high school together. Didn't know him very well, but I was using that analogy with the guy to tell he would feel sorry for me. But I went in to say, hey, Doc, I'm not doing really well. My grades aren't as good as they should be. And thought he'd just pat me on the head and say, you know, don't worry, little goofball. Just go out being a goofball and, you know, things will come around because they want to keep the kids there. But, you know, the guy basically told me in a very blunt phrase, I can't say on the radio, but, you know, crap or get off the pot. (laughs) And I'm telling you, it was like he slapped me across the face. Mm. Mm. But I I sent his widow a note whenever he'd passed away. At that time, I was elected county coroner. And I said to her, I just want you to know that though your husband's gone— the impact of some of the hmm. things he's done will continue because he gave a young man the kick in the butt he needed hmm. when he wanted a pat on the head. Hmm. And I want you to know that I would not be in this elected office had your husband not changed the direction of my life. Wow. So, so you decide, um, you know, the school thing isn't for me. Uh, what do you I, go I just wasn't ready yeah. to be yeah. there. You know, I was okay. the first one out of our family to go. My father's a Penn State grad, and you know, it's kind of tradition. Everybody has to go. Yeah. And I love to work. And so oh. I uh, was worth building houses. I was making three. I think I bumped up to three ten an hour mm-hmm. <laughs> that summer, and I interviewed for a job at the hospital. I had worked as a volunteer there at thirteen. My sister was already working there, and so I interviewed for a job as an orderly, male nurse, whatever you want uh-huh. to call it. And I still again remember the last question the woman, head director of nursing, asked me. She says, "Well, last question I want to ask you is, your sister works here. She's been here for seven years. How do you feel you'll do taking orders from her?" And I don't know if I was just being a flip 19-year-old or whatever, but I said, well, respectfully, ma'am, I've been taking orders for her for 19 years. The only difference is you're going to pay me. And boom, she hired me. 11 best years of my life. Hmm. I met a tremendous amount of people. I learned more things about healthcare and medicine than I ever would have known. And subsequently, I mean, I've had some emergencies with my own children, and I had not had that own technique and some of the knowledge I gained there, I may not even have one of them hmm. because I end up having to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on my one child at a very young age. I was 24 when that happened, hmm. and it had not been for that training I had at the hospital. So, you know, learning comes in a multitude of ways. Yeah. Uh, I use those examples with a lot of young people that the relationships you build in the workforce or neighbors or friends or people you volunteer with are just as vital as our academia, and it is that accumulation of all those things that to me makes you a better rounded person so you you mentioned kids uh at, you know you're 11 years working as an orderly uh you had you got married during this time yes I actually met my uh, children's mother there she was a beautiful brunette brown eyes and uh, she, was she working she, at the hospital yes too? okay she, she reminded uh-huh. me i think she told me she didn't really like me then <laughs> and uh, I was very energetic and aggressive and a quick learner and things. And uh, I don't know if she probably thought I was cocky. It's probably the appropriate term. <laughs> but sub- subsequently, ended up marrying. We had four beautiful children together. I have a son and three daughters and uh, couldn't be blessed any more. They're all grown adults now. But nine months and two days uh, after we got married, we had my son. And my son had some challenges. And it makes you grow up real fast when mm. your children have sudden medical challenges. I had... Uh, two of my children ended up having epileptic problems, and it's a frightening experience. Even though I had seen those things working in a hospital, 
when they become personal, it's even yeah. more of a challenge. And to have your child seizing four, five, six, seven, and sometimes 12 times a day is not an easy thing to deal with at any age, much less in your early 20s and an early marriage. But it makes you grow up real fast. Oh, yeah. Well, and I know, Carrie, you've been through a lot, uh, the challenges uh, that nobody wants to ever go through. Uh, you, you lost a child yes. um, a number of years ago, and uh, your daughter uh, dealt with some major uh, health issues. Yeah. Uh, um, but I know you've emerged from that. Those are one of those things that... Uh, uh, that you get knocked down, either you stay down or you get up stronger. And I know I've, I've watched you over the years uh, be strong, uh, certainly grow in your faith. Uh, I know that's become a big part of, of your life. Uh, but uh, uh, maybe share about how those times, you know, impacted you and your worldview, your perspective on life. Uh, well, I'll digress real quickly. You know, you talked about my parents. And no, my parents didn't have real strong political views on things. My parents made sure we got to church, and they were not necessarily pulpit pounders. Uh, but they felt that it was an important issue for taking your children. They were very regular about that. And I got through confirmation class. And I like to joke, uh, part of my legislative district has a church camp called Hartman Center, which I attended, I believe, at 15. It was prior to driving. And it was supposed to be senior high fellowship. And I'm young in my faith and trying to figure out where I am. And, you know, some people can tell you the exact day that they, you know, accepted Christ in their, in their life. But anyway, I'm going to this camp and I get there and it ends up it's me and 15 girls. All the other guys <laughs> dropped out. And I thought, I do believe. <laughs> and I often tell this story at Harvard Center. But uh, that was a tremendous week for me. Like I came home and uh, was thinking about all I had learned in a week and how much of this was real or it was just a bunch of excited counselors trying to get you all ginned up. My parents had two gardens. They were like 25 feet by 40, and we hand-spaded them. Well, generally I did because I was pretty good at it. And one time I was digging in this, getting them prepared for spring after that event, and I was just pondering in my mind how much this is real. And I'm kind of praying out loud to myself, Lord, you know, give me some guidance on this. Don't let me, let me, you know, help me see, discern what is or isn't. Well, in those days, I was a novice coin collector, predominantly the uh, Buffalo nickels in my dad's drawer I used to steal so I can get 15 cents <laughs> and buy an ice cream sandwich periodically. But I see this shiny thing in the ground as I'm digging. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is it. My wealth, mm-hmm. I'm done. I want to mm-hmm. work another day after there's this magic <laughs> coin in the ground. Anyway, I take it out and I wipe it off and there's an eyelet on the top so I realized at that point it was a medallion of some sort and I flipped it over this again this is at a time that I'm pondering my own faith and I'd mm-hmm. actually uh, put a little cross down at the bottom of my parents jar along the stream because I felt very strong about certain things I had learned but on the flip side of that medallion was a picture of Jesus standing holding a staff and a lamb in his arm it was an Illuma enamel finish thing and that had probably been in the ground for a long time. It's not a high-quality thing, but it was an interesting medallion, about a little bit bigger than a quarter, smaller than a half dollar. But I thought, what a tremendous message that was for a 15-year-old boy who was trying to figure out what was real and what mm-hmm. wasn't real. And when I'm asking for some sign of certainty for me, and I still have it. Hmm. You know, I'm a couple years older than 15, <laughs> may not acted, but I've never forgotten that. Mm-hmm. So that becomes... Um, part of your fundamental fiber, mm-hmm. for at least for me, that, you know, through uh, a marital loss of the, my children's mother, uh, there was times I remember sitting in church and wondering, what value do I have? Yeah. And I remember my friend pastor says, uh, I was sitting in the back row wondering what I was doing there. And he said, God loves you even when you can't love yourself. Mm. Bam. That was the sentence I hmm. need to hear. Yeah. Time goes on. You know, I was uh, working at the hospital. I was working full-time as an orderly early on. 
I took a part-time job doing autopsies, not something many people want to think about. Yeah. But it was fascinating. It made my early job, it enhanced it, because when if I was part of the CPR team, which I was, and they were talking about the biology of what was going on internally with this individual and where the heart was having what they call an infarction, which is an acute event whenever you get a blockage in one of your arteries, which subsequently causes a heart attack, as we talk about. The heart attack is the muscular damage to the heart. It all became tangible because I was assisting removing these organs and dissecting them in the lab. And that made that job far more interesting mm -hmm. and made my early job better. Well, I eventually met the county coroner because half the cases we would do were his. Mm -hmm. just flash forward, he ends up hiring me as one of his deputies. I was very reliable because I was at the hospital 311, so a lot of times I would take most of the calls, whether I was on duty or not. And again, talking about giving back, I went to the CEO of the hospital in those days and I said, Mr. Brannigan, I have an opportunity to have a part-time job as a deputy coroner, but at times I may get called out on duty. When I'm working here for you at 311, and some cases may come in the, in the ER, most CEOs, and I bet a lot of CEOs today would say, no, you're not doing that. You can't do both because you work for us. Mm -hmm. But that man gave me the opportunity and trust to say, I think you'll handle both those well. Hmm. And because of that, I serve in the state legislature mm -hmm. because the man took a chance with me. Okay. So you're serving, you're doing both, orderly working for the coroner. Yeah. Uh, what is coroner your first elected office that yes. you run for? Yeah, I ran for office. My, my predecessor, as, hope, as life would have it, had a massive heart attack, was off for a while. I kind of ran the office as it was and decided it was time for him to move on. DNA was coming on, a lot of technology and things that he wasn't comfortable with. And so I ran. Mm -hmm. and there were seven of us that ran that year. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I didn't have $100 a file for my petitions. <laughs> you know, My mother-in-law had given me that money, and uh, we filed. It was a... Seven-person race, we won the primary, and then subsequently won the fall election with a nice vote total. And, uh, you know, my whole family was involved, my kids and, and wife. And what, what year was this? Uh, the 91. 91, okay. Yeah. And then I got reelected in 95, didn't have any opposition there. As you can imagine, uh, generally there's not a lot of people standing in line to be coroner. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a 24-hour day job. You're on call 24 hours, seven days a week. And most people's downtime is a busy time for the coroner's office, Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, and holidays. People have a tendency to check on loved ones on Sundays and oftentimes find them deceased, mm. especially the elderly. And so our weekends were very busy. And that changes your family lifestyle a lot. My children uh, had us exit many restaurants very quickly when my pager would go off. Mm. And so when you decide to run for office, you have to think about what the impact on your family was. So you did this uh, until you decided to run for state house, though. I was How actually uh, just reelected as coroner and kind of the up-and-comer in the party and was helping coordinate events. And so when the legislative district seat come open, they thought, hey, help us find a candidate. You're aggressive. You're young. Mm -hmm. well, and so I was out trying to find a candidate. And then some of the powers to be in Harrisburg caught wind and I think our local uh, state committee woman said, you know, the guy we ought to be running is actually the guy you're asking to look for. for. <laughs> you know, geographically, I am actually literally the belly button of Center County. We are in the middle of the state as well as um, geographic areas of this district. So I was asked to run. I denied it three times. <laughs> said that's not really what I want to do. And unfortunately, I had this young girl that was killed in a car accident, and she was a pedestrian. She had been leaving from school, was heading down one of the interstates and stepped out in a grassy area because there was a traffic jam, as some other people did, got out of her car, see what was going on, was stretching, 
and somebody that was in a hurry to go for a job interview did not realize that the traffic had stopped, swerved, went in the grass to get out of the way and kills her. Mm. And what angered me is when we went to court many, many months later, uh, she had a trace of marijuana in her system. Well, if you know anything about um, medicine as far as uh, the bi biology of the chemistry, uh, we don't quantitate marijuana as easily as we do alcohol. You know, when you get a blood test, you can show positive or negative for different chemistry, and then you go back and you do a quantitative value of, so you can get a saturation level, how much alcohol per milliliter mm -hmm. of blood. Well, it's harder to do that. And marijuana has a long half-life. So you can have a trace of marijuana even if you hadn't smoked anything for two weeks or you were around it mm -hmm. in a pretty dense area. Anyway, I'll make a long story short. The defense attorney in my opinion, re-victimized her and her parents to sit there and try to encourage the jury to consider that she's partially responsible for her own death because she was under the influence mm. of marijuana. Even though he knew, we knew, there was a minute trace. Um, it was about trying to put doubt in the jury's mm. mind. And mm. that angered me, and it reminded me that as coroner, I always deal with everything at the end of the equation. Mm. What can I do to have a better influence on that and better outcome? I couldn't change this situation. I couldn't make this experience in a courtroom less painful for these parents. So I ran for the legislature. <laughs> I remember running. Uh, it was just myself and another gentleman on the Democrat ticket, and we both of us unopposed in the primary. And I decided, and this is back with bag phones, which didn't work very well. You can make call on call. And, and so I'm trying to run full-time as coroner, pardon me, running for the office and also serve full-time in two different counties. Hmm. At the time, the counties were split up a little bit more. The majority of the district was still state college. Some was in Mifflin County. But anyway, I'm making a long story short. I'm running back and forth in this old clunky truck that didn't run well half the time, a phone <laughs> that didn't work. And I can remember election night that night. I did what I always do because I tell people, if I put a yard sign up, I'll have it down within 48 hours. So on election night, to take care of the nervous jitters, I always run around and take yard signs down. And so I did, and I come rolling into town here about quarter of 11. I have a headquarters set up in the hardware store, and uh, the kid's mother comes running out. Where have you been? Where have you been? I said, well, I was taking my yard signs down like I always do, because our some of our results didn't come back late because they were hand-tabulated in those days. Well, get in here. You, it's over. I said, oh, crap, I lost already. <laughs> no, you idiot, you won back at 9 o'clock. And it was called, you know, within 6, 7. Hmm precincts that come in, you know, consistent. Mm -hmm. So it was a great experience, and it's one of those things you never forget. I always said getting elected is a, a tremendous uh, experience and a, a just um, very uplifting. And then your first re-election is the same way because that's an affirmation that you've done a good job mm -hmm. or tried to serve mm -hmm. well. And so my goal is to continue to do that. When I come to Harrisburg 322, as soon as I see the dome, of the Capitol, I'm as giddy as I was hmm. the first time we ran. Well, and as we were walking to your office, you uh, mentioned that even after 22 years, you love uh, running again. Absolutely. You love running for re-election. And, uh, you know, as we were having some coffee beforehand, I see you interact with people uh, incredibly well. People see you. Uh, they they talk to you. They know your, your life story. Uh, um, I, I see that there's, you know, a mutual uh, benefit uh, that is going on there that uh, people appreciate the, the job you do. Well, you're kind to say that, and I feel that life is about serving people. You just pick what arena you want to do it in, you know, whether you're an orderly or contractor or a teacher or a coach or whatever it is that you do. And politics 
sometimes gets a very negative connotation. But, you know, if we think back, why do we have government? Why do we have mm-hmm. some different levels of government? It's the civil way of dealing with conflicts or differences of opinions. You know, we want digress to beating each other over the head with clubs to separate, you know, to solve differences. What good is that? Well, you uh, you mentioned that um, your parents were not politically engaged. Where? How did you say, look, I'm a Republican as opposed to a Democrat? Or what are those principles that uh, guide your policymaking or the things that you say, I stand for this and I'm opposed to that? Uh, what, where, did, where did that develop and how did you become more of a political animal? I got elected president of the United States as a 10th grader. So that's <laughs> okay. a scary thought. Okay. I had a world cultures class, great teacher. And we, make a long story short, went through the the federal level of government. In those days, nobody wanted to be the president. So someone to be lobbyists, someone to be senators. And we basically went through the process over a couple of weeks. And I was President Nash. And so I got elected and people worked under bills and they eventually presented them. And a good example of 17-year-old immaturity uh, when a particular bill came to me, I couldn't wait till it came to me. I didn't even remember what the bill was because all I wanted to do was veto it. Well, number one, <laughs> I didn't have veto powers in those days. But it shows the stupidity of youth at times and where you didn't appreciate the power. In 1997, when I got sworn in, I remember Matt Ryan, the speaker then, saying, power is only as good as you choose to use it. And that moment of being President Nash and veto flashed back to me that I had hoped now at 34 years old my maturity would allow me to exercise whatever perceived power I may have as a legislator, but you have access and you have the ability to dialogue with people who are in power-making decisions would be used in a smarter, better way than I exercised it at 17. So, you know, life's a journey. Mm -hmm. It's about how you learn and how you serve. I believe that my fundamental beliefs are how I decide about things. Some of it's a gut thing. You know, my father was registered Republican. I probably registered because he was Republican as well. Both mom and dad were, although my mother's father was a staunch Democrat, and she used to always talk about those types of things. But they weren't as political about parties, about things. Mm. But they had the fundamental values of believing in hard work and pro-family, pro-life, and um, believing in people's individual rights. Mm -hmm. And I guess fundamentally that's probably the biggest driving thing for me in addition to my faith. The country is to serve the people not the people just serving the government. Mm -hmm. And when you look at our forefathers, whether it's Penn or some of the founding fathers and what it is that they believed in, they just had basic beliefs. And and I continue to study these guys and read a lot about them. It just amazes me on how committed they were about specific core things that were important. And ultimately, I'm kind of a less government guy overall, starting working at 11 and making a couple dollars and seeing what your labors can produce, I think people should be able to keep that to the most of their ability. And we don't go government just because we're trying to create government jobs because that's money out of someone else's pocket who's worked very, very Mm -hmm. hard for it. And so that's kind of driven me. And do you think, uh, I I guess this does get into some of the policy things that you've been exploring, um, but because you've been in government for 22 years uh, or or thereabouts uh, at the state level, certainly uh, seeing things as coroner and more at the the local level, uh, is government good at solving our social societal problems or do you see it as not being uh, the first... uh, you know, avenue of solving these these challenges. I, I joke, people. I'm probably the most, the least government 
government guy you're going to meet. <laughs> and in some ways, that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, we, we, put, we put governors on a carburetor for a reason and try to control the flow of things. Well, I see myself as kind of a governor, a carburetor governor, mm-hmm. for those of you who remember those things yeah. in, in old uh, mechanics, to try to control where government's involvement is. There is a structure, and we need the national government to have a strong military and keep us safe in our sovereignty as a country. Uh, maybe a little bit of structure there for international trade and our relationships with our other countries. But, you know, beyond that, I'm not a big federal government mm-hmm. kind of guy. I like local governance. I like smaller government. I like school district to be able to make decisions on their own because fundamentally I want to make decisions on yeah. my own. And so I think as individuals, regardless of what party you think you ascribe to, I think you have to think about what is it fundamentally guides your own life. When you make decisions for your wife and your children, your family and your extended family in your neighborhood, in your involvement there, you're motivated by some kind of governmental ideology. And it may be that you believe that you should volunteer to help raise money for XY group. Well, you do that because you believe that private citizens should do that. Mm -hmm. To your acute question, government's never as efficient as what the private people can do. It always costs more for government to do whatever than what individuals can do. And you see that as you get down lower levels of government. It's amazing what these little townships can do if you just get out of their way. Hmm. And when I see small government groups growing and performing different cogs and things, all of a sudden, the one thing you see most growth in is the cost to produce whatever it is they produce. Mm -hmm. Where I see these townships with three people, it's amazing what they can get done. Indeed. Uh, so uh, in your role uh, in the caucus, you have been elected the policy chairman. Right. Uh, explain that role and talk about some of the things that you guys are exploring, pursuing, and maybe uh, what we ought to expect to be on the horizon here as you guys uh, start up another uh, year here in 2018. Well, as I said, I've been honored to be elected by our members. Uh, we get elected by our citizenry to the job of representative and then internally we have eight leadership roles from speaker on down that are elected by the membership. And that's a real nice affirmation that the time you have served has proven that you have some ability to lead. And while some people like to get caught up in term limits, I believe we have that. Every two years you can throw us out. And in the same token, that has happened in leadership teams. If people aren't satisfied with somebody, they move them out. And that's a good uh, democratic process that works, and it helps to sift out um, quality versus uh, strong leadership. With that in mind, you know, as policy chair, we, we are there to assist our members. And when your policy committee in the majority, oftentimes you're trying to um, support and give guidance to your caucus's agenda, the party that is in power because they have more members than the other, i.e. the word majority, controls budgets, they control the agenda, and they control what's going on in the House floor for the most part. We... Uh, specifically try to serve our members in their districts. We provide opportunities to host hearings and other events in their districts that the standing committees may not do. Our standing committees are bipartisan, where the policy committee is partisan. The Democrats have one, we have one. And there's been times where I've worked with them on specific issues, like the opioid uh, addiction process across the Commonwealth. I don't see that as a partisan issue. Uh, On a more partisan level, we have worked on a lot of things to do with fiscal issues. In the early tenure of this current governor, as you know, we were asked to consider raising the budget by $5 billion the first year and $8 billion the next year. Uh, that was unacceptable to me in a budget that was growing by the billion uh, dollar, billion two, billion three every year prior anyhow. 
it was not sustainable and it was not what the average taxpayers could afford. And so we aggressively uh, went out and educated a lot of the community through different hearings across the Commonwealth. We put several brochures together on what the current tax code was like, where money comes from. We wanted to make a direct connection between your money the government's money and how the government is spending your money mm-hmm. and what percentage. And it was very, very successful. And as you know, we were able to stop that $5 billion worth of increase in that budget and some several other requests in last year's go by. And I would still like to see less spending, but as far as raising tax rates, is very dangerous because once you raise those rates, they never come back. Everybody says, well, this is temporary or we're going to do it as a pilot program. Well, somehow that fades away and government continues to grow. Yeah, I, I guess uh, this well precedes you, uh, but the, the Johnstown tax, of Correct. course, uh, that uh, we wanted to repair that uh, uh, town because of the, the floods. Uh, here we are today. It's only grown. <laughs> and sadly, <laughs> the tax has grown in the community of Johnstown still struggles Straight, right. economically. Right. And I often wonder if you could have taken that same aggregate amount of money hmm. and given it to John Sound and said, knock yourselves out, what can you do? Yeah. Uh, I read a book recently called They Built America, or They Made America, and it had to do with a lot of 25 entrepreneurs of the previous century, starting with Sam Colt. But one of them specifically was the individuals who came up with the idea of a transcontinental railway. Hmm. Now, I'm sure the majority of people said, are you guys out of your mind? I'm going to have trouble <laughs> riding my horse down to the store to get some eggs and whatever it is, and you're going to try to build a railway all across the country? with the idea that you're going to stimulate commerce. But you know what? They had a dream. They had a vision. And they got a plan together and executed. And they executed that against tremendous odds to the point where Mm. some of those mountainsides, they actually chipped these things out by hand. They suspended individuals in baskets, hand-woven baskets, and they chipped away at the rocks to get the right angulation on that. My point being is somebody made this happen. Mm -hmm. And I believe that individuals do this. They get these ideas, and I think Johnstown probably could have done a lot better with that money themselves. Now, Kerry, uh, before I want to ask about what you see as some of the big accomplishments that you've had, uh, but uh, before we do that, uh, um, the the issue of welfare has certainly been one. Even you know, even if uh, um, we don't raise taxes, uh, the way yeah. Governor Wolf has said. Uh, we, we have some trajectories in terms of uh, uh, spending on autopilot, particularly in the realm of welfare. I know that you guys uh, have been working on that in the policy committee and you yourself talked about, look, there's, there's some reforms that have got to be addressed here for us to bend those cost curves to something that the taxpayers can afford without having to go back and raise those taxes. Well, if you look at budgets, whether it's state budgets or federal budgets, and sometimes even school budgets, the majority of the money goes to personnel and services. You know, government was designed to help those individuals who couldn't necessarily help themselves and in some cases do certain things that are for the greater good, i.e. road projects Mm -hmm. or, you know, significant infrastructure types of things. And so we have some social programs to help people out who, for whatever reason, through uh, significant marital changes, sudden disease, whatever else, find themselves in need. Um, sometimes you get a spontaneous health issue that you don't have control over, and you're unemployed or your health care exi- is exhausted. You know, we want to be able to help those individuals have Having out. a safety net, essentially. Correct. Right. But these were never designed to be a, sense, a source of employment, full-time employment, and generational employment. And our welfare system has grown to be that way, both in the state and on the federal level. And unfortunately, there are those elected officials at time that use these as kind of a, 
a picnic basket to try to earn uh, hmm. the love of their constituents by providing. And I'm all for us trying to help people, whether it's physically or medically or for whatever ill may um, bother them at the time. But the more importantly, as the um, counselor at Penn State did for me, instead of giving me a cookie and sending me on my merry way, he gave me the directional change that I needed. Mm. And so the goal for me through welfare change is to say, listen, we're here to help you. We're sorry that you lost your spouse. We're sorry that your house burned down. We're sorry that you got this illness and you lost your job. But you're better. You're back on track. What job can we help you find? Mm-hmm. What um, sense of pride and honor can we help instill back in you when you take that check back home and you show to your children, look what I just earned. I earned this for you. I earned this for your future education. To me, it's a whole philosophical change. When you look at our state budget pie, the fastest growing area is our welfare area, mm-hmm. human services, some people want to call. And when you got over 40, 41% of the whole state budget going to that, another almost 40% going to public education, whether it's K through 12 or higher education, and I think it's now 8 or 9% going to corrections, you have darn near 92% of your budget eaten up in three areas. Mm-hmm. Well, it's pretty hard to not be spending money in corrections, although I do believe there's areas to get that done more efficiently, and we are working on those as well. But we hosted hearings across the Commonwealth to try to address this welfare issue because there are some who want to make it out that we're just being mean and we don't care about yeah. people. You want to kick people off the roll so we can save money. That's right. right. Yeah. That is not the case. But when you have able-bodied people who have no impediment, no handicap, no medical challenge, no reason other than lack of will, that aren't willing to go get a job, why do other people work to 65, 70, 75 years old to be subsidizing that? Hmm. One of the hearings we did up in the Luzerne area, we had a couple of local proprietors come in. One guy ran a pretty prominent deli-type business. And he said, I know every month when you folks issue those checks. He says... Because we have a handful of individuals that come into my deli and they order the biggest lobsters I have and the biggest steaks I have and take them down the street and they sell them to a local tavern or some other entity that not only competes with me, but they sell them on 50 cents on the dollar or less. So they're buying with other people's money. You're asking me to pay more taxes into the Mm. welfare system so I can get competed against by individuals who are getting money for not working and buying the best I have and selling it on pennies on the dollar. And I know you're not suggesting that that's what everybody does that that has these kinds of benefits. But right now, uh, we don't have some of the checks and balances to make sure that the money's going to those who truly need it versus those who are, frankly, gaming the system uh, and profiting off Absolutely. of it. Under President Clinton, I give him credit, we had welfare to work and we had requirements. You had to be going to work or pursuing a career opportunity or education of 20 hours a week. 20 hours a week is not that much to ask for somebody. And this is in conjunction with the fact we have a lot of government-subsidized daycare availability for people. So it's not that they can't go to work because they have children. But you had to be pursuing uh, some type of betterment, education, job, or whatever else. You have to, and these are still requirements today, they just aren't always enforced that well through different administrations. You could not be on for more than two years consistently, Mm -hmm. and you could not gain, pardon me, you could not acquire this for more than five-year lifetime. Well, unfortunately, the word is out in the street that if your benefits weren't run out in New York or New Jersey or somewhere else, go go to Pennsylvania because they don't enforce 
the five-year maximum. So people are maxing out in other states and they're coming here and collecting. That's wrong. We've had. Cases. And you have the evidence of this. This yes. came out. Yeah. Yes, and, and and other administrations have as well. Mm-hmm. And you've had secretaries of the welfare who have turned a blind eye. They've basically sent down orders, not necessarily always written, that do not ask, do not tell, and you don't ask if people what their income is. They come in, they request a benefit, we give it to them. Mm-hmm. And it's created a tremendous amount of government dependency. And once you start giving stuff to people, it's hard to get it back. At the end of the day, there's only so much money. I don't care what program, whether it's senior citizen assistance program, whether it's veteran programs or welfare. And some other program that's badly needed will hurt if we don't make the welfare spending efficient in how the money's well, we heard uh, during the Rendell years that the uh, Secretary of uh, Human Services or Secretary of yes. Public Welfare at that time, that their um, policy was close your eyes and authorize. Correct. Um, and so we uh, and that was a measure of success under Rendell that he would say is, look how many more people we've added to the public roles. Over 400,000 more. Well, and so you guys put something on the governor's desk that yes. would have required some reforms here. Can you explain uh, what that bill did and, and why, how, you know, the justification that uh, Governor Wolf gave for vetoing it? Well, I can't necessarily explain his justification, but... Um, <laughs> Do your best. At the end of the day, we were trying to put some work requirements in there. There was a caveat that in there, if you earned 1,000% over the poverty rate, which on average is about $250,000 a year, uh, there was a small copay. Again, try and encourage shared cost. A copay of $50. If you're earning $250,000, you'd have a shared copay of $50 a month, I believe it was. This was this is for somebody who's drawing down some Medicare benefit, Medicaid yeah, benefits. For a chronically or, ill okay. individual within their home, which we are very. So we're still subsidizing people yes. who make a quarter of a million, and you know, right. look, and so they're getting some public benefit. Correct. Uh, but saying. If you're going to get this, and you can clearly afford uh, that, you ought to be participating in in this, right? And that little bit of a copay would provide a couple of extra dollars that we have people on a waiting list that maybe we can help a couple more families out. Mm-hmm. Again, back to what I said earlier, there's only so much money to go around. We were trying to just fundamentally put some restrictions uh, in, in trying to encourage people to go to work. And I don't think a work requirement is very similar to the, the parallel to what the Clinton administration did of saying you have to actively be pursuing. And this is only for people who uh, were physically able and handy yeah. and healthy, uh, no handicaps, no dependent no, children. Yeah, right. I mean, this is about as liberally written as you could possibly make it. It was just to try to get some small change in there. And I actually believe it was vetoed before it got to the desk. Yeah, I think he declared that, that, yeah. Yeah, and it was a political decision that was made because it's popular amongst some of his constituencies. Well, when I look at my service, I don't serve just the people in the 171st District. I serve all 12.6 million people in Pennsylvania, and I fundamentally, from a fiscal perspective, I look out for everybody that's paying in that system. Mm -hmm. And... Unfortunately, to have that vetoed uh, was very, very frustrating. And I mean, it passed by a r- relatively small margin in the House, but we got it through and got through the Senate. And I think the public should expect us to do that because there are people in truly need. Actually, one of the faster areas of population that's starting to need help 
is the older population. Because we've done a good job in healthcare, a lot of people are starting to outlive their economic means, whatever retirement they may or may have had and or cannot survive on the little bit they're getting through Social Security. And sometimes they need a little assistance through MA. And I think those people are the ones that we should be helping. Mm-hmm. And I think those who have served our country, we should be helping. And unfortunately, there's only so many dollars that sometimes we get trapped that we cannot do that because we have to make the fiscal decisions that are not being made in these simple welfare reform. We're going to continue working on it. Yeah, and I hope you do. You've got states like Wisconsin that are pursuing some comprehensive welfare reform. And we know that it started in Wisconsin, uh, Tom Lee Thompson, uh, who uh, did that that preceded, as you noted, uh, President Clinton's yes. uh, welfare to work. They seem to be leading once again in Wisconsin, and hopefully we'll continue to press that uh, here in Pennsylvania, because unless we get control of the uh, trend, you know, increases in human services, uh, we, won't, we won't ever have enough taxes uh, to pay for it. Now, Carrie, one of the things, you know, every legislator loves to have kind of that signature piece of legislation that say, man, that's what I'm really proud of. And I know you've had bills uh, signed in the past, but I know you recently, uh, not too long ago, had a piece of legislation that was not only personal for you, um, but the ripple effect of how you've impacted people's lives. You're, you're getting stories all of the time. Uh, talk about what that piece of legislation is that you got passed, and just some of the stories that uh, uh, you were sharing with me before. Well, very quickly, you know, everyone who comes to legislature brings ideologies and backgrounds from different career paths that are areas that they want to work on. And fundamentally, I look at stuff as senior citizens, I look at things with children, I'm strong on the family issues and, and economics and job growth. Uh, one of the other bills I passed that was significant, I felt, was the fact that we codified DUI laws. At one time, um, if you got DUI by boat, it was different if you got DUI by car. And I actually had an incident here where somebody had actually had several DUIs while driving a car, and he killed a young girl who was a, a young immigrant that came here to live for a better life with a friend of mine. And sadly, her mother passed away, and then her sister adopted this child again to give her a better life. And the child was killed in a boating hmm. accident. And the guy that killed her was tried as a first-time offender because it was the first time he was offended DUI by boat. By boat, but so, had a bunch of DUIs in his car, yeah. okay. And ironically, even at his own sentencing, he admitted, he said, I just love beer. Hmm. And he was somewhat inebriated then. But anyhow, the law basically codified that these can be cumulative and regardless of what kind of vehicle you're in. That's important. Those are safety missions. That helps all the community. It doesn't help return this child's life. Uh, by disclosure, my other issue that I've been working on for a long time, it was not really as personal when it started as it eventually b- became. <laughs> and that has to do with the fundamental right I thought people had. In 1984, ironically, another conservative Republican uh, changed the law and concealed all Pennsylvania-born adoptees' birth certificates. The birth records were already sealed, but you could no longer get direct access to your own original birth certificate. You could file $10 as vital records to get a copy of your birth certificate. You get it back. It says where you're born, time, date, mom, name, dad, name, all those types of things. Mine would come back, and it just has my adopted parent's name on my name, period. That's it. That's so it didn't have anything biological or no, anything? No, so it was very nondescriptive, okay. non-informative. Uh-huh. And ironically, the year before I ran, 95, Larry Sather passed a bill that was supposed to help that a little bit. And it was a providing under Act 101, I think, or 111, it was to provide 
non-descriptive, um, non, pardon me, non-identifying information so that you could petition the courts and try to get some information about your medical background things. Well, historically, I did a little bit of analysis on it. The number of people that applied for that versus the number of people getting information was minuscule, much less any of them getting any kind of contact with subsequent family. The numbers were just abysmal. And so in 2010, I introduced a bill that said adoptees should be able to have the same access as every other Pennsylvania-born citizen. You know, if you file $10, I file $10, why shouldn't I be able to have to? Well, it was quite a struggle. The first time I introduced it was a little late in the session, so it just kind of quivered, rolled over, and died in committee. <laughs> so I came around next session, introduced it again. And by disclosure, I had done a little bit of research on myself. I am adopted, as we talked a little bit earlier on. Uh, and then because I had two epileptic children and I had had my own low event, I was getting frustrated that every time I go to the doctor and you fill out medical information and you go about your medical past, every <laughs> item, high blood pressure, diabetes, I would put check non-applicable, 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 non-applicable. And somewhere in my later 30s, I thought, you know what, darn it, this is applicable. Yeah. It's just not yeah. available because the government tells me I can't do this. So I introduced the bill a second time, same scenario. And so let me just to, kind of to clarify. So you're basically saying uh, it, you can't find out sort of your past medical no. history because the it's government wouldn't uh, allow you to, uh, you know, find out. Look, did I, did, was there heart disease in my right. family background? Because obviously you're ado- adopted parents, uh, adoptive parents. Uh, that didn't apply. <laughs> Correct. The biology wasn't there to yes. do that. And, you know, the fact that I ended up having two children with this issue, mm-hmm. there was no history in their mother's past, made me believe fundamentally it probably came from mine. Mm. Now, granted, every syndrome starts somewhere. Somebody has to be the first. But our medical history is a tremendous tool in medical diagnoses. Yeah. And oftentimes it is a tool of exclusion. We rule out everything else because of X, Y, Z, and we make a deductive, rational decision that we think this is your problem, not only by the things we were able to see, but all the things we were able to rule out in your past. And I felt that in a day and age where we're able to have people living in a space station, people want to be able to know their medical history. Mm. And I'm more than willing to try to do this as discreetly as possible. So I reintroduced the bill a second time to do that. And interestingly, I started getting communications from people across the state. And then I started getting communications from people across the country. As technology came and communications is so much more vast, different than it was 20 years when I came to this office. I remember the one particular correspondence I got from a guy. I can't remember if he was Korean or fought, if he fought in the Korean War, pardon me, or Vietnam War. But he said, Mr. Benninghoff, thank you for introducing House Bill 162. I kept the number consistent every time I introduced mm-hmm. it. He said, I fought in X war. I went to a country by draft uh, to a country that I didn't really know where it was to fight for people I didn't even know, only to come back to my own country and be told I can't have a copy of my own birth certificate. Hmm. I find that really frustrating. And you get story after story about that type of thing. And a lot of it is driven by the medicine of, of it and the medical background. Well, interestingly, the more I started getting these stories, I thought, you know, the good Lord has put me in a position that I can fight for these people. I can be a voice to these people. So that second term, um, it did make a lot of progress either because the particular chairman was not real keen on it. It goes to show the power of chairmanships. 
And so it didn't have much result in that term. I came back another time, talked about a little bit of resistance. I always joke to people, I'm an old wrestler. We're about the last 30 seconds of the third period. So don't you know, do what you want the first two. We're running to get you in the last 30 seconds. So long as you don't pin me uh, before That's that. That's right. <laughs> and as fate would have it, you know, chairmanships come and go and people change. And I had a change in chairmanship in the House of Representatives. And Kathy Watson out of Bucks County became the chairwoman. Ironically, I didn't know it, but I knew it then. Kathy Watson's an adoptee. The other significant aspect that she brought to it, she's also an adoptive mother. Mm. The adoptee versus adoptive parents versus natural parent battle, for a lot of us, feel has always felt like it's been kind of out of balance. There's lots of energy and emphasis there to protect the natural-born parent. Uh, there's been this... Mo- Just their privacy. They say, well, look, privacy, they gave up their child. They uh, may not certain, want to be known. Correct. Or, yeah. In certain agencies, uh, thought this is about a pro-life issue. Ironically, the guy who passed the bill in 84 did this because he was an arch pro-lifer, which uh, by disclosure I am too, but this was his whole issue. And he felt that if you sealed these records, uh, more women would give their children up for adoptions mm. and reduce mm. the number of abortions. Well, as an adoptee, do you not think I'm not cognizant of that? Yeah. But if you look at states like Alaska and other states that never sealed the records, they have some of the lowest abortion rates across the country. If you look at other states who have reversed it, as Pennsylvania eventually did, their number of abortions actually went down. They did not go up. Hmm. So there's really no statistical data to... to so one of the arguments being that uh, by sealing these things, we'll have lower abortions. Uh, and Correct. by making them public, you're going to increase. Correct. But there's nothing to... I mean, it might make... Uh, you know, sure. In, you in know, your own mind, yeah. it sounds. Ooh, yeah. yeah, that might. And so those become pushback for me, and I, and I have to convince other legislators uh, that this is not the case. And so there's a, a salesmanship that has to go on here. But I really give a lot of credit to Kathy Watson. She was the catalyst for change because she's willing to listen to it. Uh, she conducted a couple of hearings. I had a good friend of mine now, Annie Williams. She's a state rep who lives in uh, Chicago, Illinois. And she is a Pennsylvania-born adoptee. And so she's watching this very closely. Hmm. She's already voted to give people the right to do this in her current home state, but can't get her own birth certificate. Hmm. So there's a lot of those interesting dynamics that go on with that type of thing. And So, so, we so how many sessions uh, had you introduced this? And, and well, when did you... Uh, two quivers, yeah. and then we okay. finally got... And Kathy <laughs> was the catalyst for the change, and I give minority chairwoman uh, Louise Bishop at the same time. She spoke at the hearing and said, you know... This is a bill whose time has come. Hmm. And I thought that was a good statement. And we got out of committee unanimously, got it to the floor, passed unanimously. And as a lot of legislation, we went to the Senate and <laughs> died a quick death. <laughs> and there was a, you know, there's some opposition. There were some other larger agencies that opposed it. Uh, we had to work. And I put a amendment in that time to have what I call a... Um, Oh, darn, I can't remember my own amendment. But basically, it gave parents some right to have um, not to be contacted. Okay. So they could put a disclaimer on their chart or on their personal record that says, I don't want contacted. And it would be treated like any other harassment thing. If you went and pounded on someone's door who doesn't want there or whatever, you could be charged yeah. with harassment. Well, so it'd provide for that kind of uh, yeah. shielding if you don't. Yeah, there were those different groups, yeah. such as uh, those who thought, well, what about somebody who was a product of rape? Uh, what about somebody who was rape? And we were trying to be cognizant yeah. of those things, and we worked with the coalition, Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. 
And they actually went neutral on the bill. We're not enthusiastically supportive, but it went neutral after I put that in there, which is shows the legislative process. If you have good communication, work with people, you can come up with these compromises. One well, anyhow, it died in the Senate that year. And so finally I introduced it back again, I believe, in 16, uh, beginning of another session. But here we go again. <laughs> but... You know, House Bill 160, 160 there's Benning Hoffman well, once again. Well, 162. It's okay. funny because I really had wanted to pass it in one, in, in 2014 because I was sitting there thinking, how ironic. I was born the first month on the 14th day of 62, so it would have kind of almost <laughs> been, but that was a little bit too hokey, I guess. <laughs> that it took another session and a lot of education. Uh, I give credit to my own senator. They eventually helped us get through the Senate. And I'd actually That's seen Senator Jake Corman here, yeah. Yes, and yeah. I went to see Senator Scarnati on another issue one time, and I was telling him about this bill, and I was just telling him about some issues. Um, my one daughter was having some issues with a pregnancy, and I said, Senator, I'm just one example, but I, I feel like I represent the entire adoptee community. How many generations of a family have to go by to have, have no medical information? You know, why should my daughter who calls me and says, hey, the hospital wants to know your cardiac background, wants to know us, and then I have to say, you forget, I'm adopted. I have no information. Hmm. And so here's a third generation who's putting not applicable, not applicable, not applicable. And I deliberately no longer wrote not applicable. I wrote not available. Hmm. And I wanted people to think about this. I remember one physician, when he saw this, he says, what do you mean it's not available? I said, the government tells me I can't have it. He says, well, you're the government. <laughs> Go and fix says, it. You're right, and I'm trying to fix this. But even in, you know, as a trained medical physician, you know, he needed that catalyst yeah. to think, well, yeah, fundamentally yeah. that isn't right. Yeah. So ultimately we did pass it, and we had put another caveat in there that allowed for parents to redact their name off their birth certificate, which is something people really want to see. But, you know, it's interesting. As you talk to people all across the country, because we've now heard from California, Hawaii, Wyoming, wherever, you name it, Fundamentally, for some people, it was just about the piece of paper. They wanted the same right that you have. Mm. They wanted to be able to see their name on a piece of paper with their mother's name. Mm. Uh, in my own particular incident, I actually waited a while. I probably could have filed for mine after my poo adopted parents died. And my biological parents, I believe, were gone by then, too. If they are, you can file and get this information mm. prior to my bill passing. But I felt such a mission for all the people we had met in the Adoption Congress and some other organized groups across the country that we've been working with. I said, nope, I'm not getting mine before these they people can get, get theirs. theirs. Huh. And it became that kind of a passion to work for. And ironically, I actually applied for mine later than most of them. The first wave went through in November. And it was a stab. Of 2017. Or 2016. Yeah, we passed it in 2016. So, yeah, we gave the Department of Health about nine months to okay. make the regulations and everything they had to go through and to actually come up with a form because technically they're not getting a Xerox copy of the birth certificate, so you're not having you know an extra one of these floating around. But it's a birth record transferring the information over. It's not exactly perfect. Now they look back, there's a couple other things I could put on there, but you, know, you get something. They Next want, session. Yeah, you always want a little <laughs> bit more. But the correspondences we started getting were just phenomenal. You know, the emails, and we had already been getting phone calls and emails, people getting excited, wanting to get this, pushing the legislature, trying to, to lobby. When should we kick in? When should we call these guys? Should we storm Harrisburg? And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> but it was a great process of democracy, citizen involvement, different groups. And there were some that didn't totally agree, and there are some who are still upset that not every single person, because so far there's been about 2,040 
Pennsylvania-born adoptees who've gotten this. 13 redactions, and meaning 13 of these either had mom's name crossed out or dad's name crossed out. In a lot of these cases, dad's names weren't known. Mm -hmm. But that's pretty good statistics Mm -hmm. for success. And there's also a caveat in there that you can refile in five years, and therefore if the person's had a heart change of heart and does no longer retract it, you can get it. If they pass away, you get it. And so it's not forever that you never get it. But some of the stories, as I told you, of the engagement said we did the right thing. When you got people calling you up and saying, Mr. Benninghoff, I just want to tell you, thank you. Uh, the one guy sent me a message by email, and he says, um, I can't thank you enough. You have helped me get what I've been trying to for 40 years, and ironically, for my 71st birthday was my birth certificate <laughs> in the mailbox. Yeah, I, I can see it. It chokes you up. Yeah, it uh, does. Because... And I know you've had lots of those, uh, and you personally yep. um, decided to find out yourself. Uh, yep. Tell tell the story of how you uh, had your big reveal, if you will, and what's what's happened since then. Well, I, ironically, as I said, I waited for a while, and then I did eventually file, and just for fun for my staff, you know, we took a picture of mailing the envelope in. Uh, my <laughs> friend from Annie from Chicago, kind of gave me the ID. She sends me this picture. She's, oh, KB, I love you. Look at this. And she says, picture her putting her envelope for the application <laughs> in the mail. But, you know, for 47 years old, this is all she wants. She just wants to know who she was, where her origin. Uh, I, I think it's a fundamental human thing. From whence did I come? Mm-hmm. Who am I? Mm-hmm. What's my ethnic background? Did I have a mom? Did I have a dad? Well, I got mine. And not taking away from the parents that you call mom and dad Absolutely. that adopted you, but just... No one hears. The, and you know, some uh, of those beautiful uh, things I saw was the adoptive parents that were helping. Hmm. There's this misnomer in that little three-legged stool I told you about between the birth mother, the adoptive parents, and the adoptee. Who I always thought the adoptee was a shorter leg of the stool that just kind of got <laughs> ignored. There's as many birth parents who have tried to pursue this. Hmm. I helped a woman several years ago, and through a great lady here, this is a search angels, what she calls herself. All this woman wanted to know, 61 years old. Is my son that I gave up in 19 okay? Hmm. And she went through Act 101, got abysmal results, and actually got shut down because a judge finally said, that's enough, we're not doing it anymore. And was called by a, 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 his one clerk and said, he can't shut you down by law, you're supposed to get that information. But a lot of times these judges and other people had relationships with the person who got the child. It's a small town type of thing, hmm. and for whatever reason... They want to leave well enough alone. Make a very long story short, that woman, through my search angel friend, was able to find the location of her son. He's married, has children, successful, and that was it. Never called him, never hmm. contacted him. That she was enough can, of what? She can go into her twilight years hmm. knowing that her son and the decision she made was the right one. So you mail this off? I mailed uh, it off. Right. Didn't think much about it. And then one day, this official envelope comes from... Harrisburg, I thought, oh, crap, I hope I'm not in trouble or something. <laughs> and I started to open it, and then I realized what it was. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, it was before Christmas. I just, just this past Christmas. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't open it. I, yeah. I held it, and my kids, um, later on I told them about it, and at Christmas I almost opened it when they were there. They were asking me about it. And I don't know what the heck. And then at one point I was going to, I thought, maybe I'll just open it on the house floor. You know, I want to show our guys that there, some of the work they do really has some impact yeah. on people. And just schedule-wise, it just didn't work out. And I didn't want this issue to be about me. Mm-hmm. 
And so we had a press conference recently, and it was to honor the adoptees and all the hard work they did, and to you know say thank you to the Department of Health and all those people that are involved, the ones I drove crazy for a long time. But they were very helpful um, that we did do the right thing, and that government can do good things at times. And so we had people there from different parts of the country, and they spoke. And I had the darn thing in my pocket, and they... A couple of them said, I can't believe you have that thing and you haven't opened it. <laughs> because they had been in my office before we had the press conference and things. And I thought, you know what? Doggone it. These people are like this new quasi-family uh-huh. I uh-huh. have. And I whoosh, pulled it out and I opened it right there. And um, it was not a lot of magic in mine. Other, you know, my mother's name was there and I had a hint of who it could have been. As you know, I'm born in a different county. My father was not listed, but my mother was 40 when she had me. And... Um, I subsequently have now met a sister. But the important thing for me was, and it sound, may sound silly to the average person, but my mother named me. Hmm. And not that that name has any significance to me other than that she chose that name. Hmm. But hmm. I thought knowing that she was going to place this child up before she ever gave birth to it, but she valued the child enough to give it a name. Hmm. For me, that meant a lot. Yeah. And uh, if you don't go through that, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense to you, but... That says that I wasn't just a baby boy. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. One fourteen sixty two. My birthday. And you know we have these times if we clinically label stuff, we give them numbers when we don't want to give them identities. Mother gave me identity. Hmm. It's hmm. not my name now. Uh, I've been joking. My one daughter who's pregnant with twins right now. Those would be two good names <laughs> if you have boys. But what was what was your given name? Stephen John. Stephen John. You know, I may never know why she chose yeah. those names, but those my father, adoptive father, happens to be John. Huh. But they'll have some significance to me just because my biological mother, who chose to give me life at a time where she was hmm. unwed and raising three children on a nominal nurse's aid salary, also cared enough to make give me an identity. Hmm. Hmm. You know, don't just get this out of my way. You know, don't let me just go away as baby boy one fourteen sixty two. That meant something. Mm-hmm. And in return, when we saw the stories and the people that we have met, I told you about the Marcus who came into my office. You know, he's having a reunion with his mother. He brings her down from New York to go to Holy Spirit Hospital because she wants to go in the hospital where she delivered him at 19 by herself to give her <laughs> son the hug she wanted to give him <laughs> 46 years ago. How's it getting better? <laughs> you know, it's just amazing. And you know, to me, it goes back to the whole other part of government. Where is government's role? Should government be the obstruction in everything? Uh, whether it's DEP with regulations, whether it's local government who says, no, you can't have a fence, or yes, you can have a fence, no, you can't burn, you can't hang your laundry out. You know, who's government really serving? And ultimately, who is the government? We're the darn government. Yeah. And if you don't like things, then exercise change. You know, presidential elections, sometimes you like the results, sometimes you don't. But the majority of them work out because the masses say, we want change. Yeah. And well, they go in cycles. Same thing with us. Well, Representative Kerry Benninghoff, despite being a pretty much a career politician, right? Uh, <laughs> Ow. Uh, the, yeah, but the one thing that I always appreciate about you is uh, you are down to earth. Uh, I don't think you've lost touch with that. And when you have things like this last story of passing legislation that I know you've got a map uh, where you're of all the people across Pennsylvania that have been affected by just this one uh, piece of legislation. It's neat to see. Well, it's about trying to do what you think is right by government. And my goal is by the time I retire, if people say, 
Other than he's a little fatter, a little shorter, a little bolder. <laughs> he really hasn't changed. I feel like that's a success. Well, on that note, thanks for joining me on Brews and Views. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. 